Thanks for listening to the podcast of the River Anglican Church. In today's sermon, continuing in emotionally healthy discipleship, we talk about grief and loss. These can be rough topics, but they have things to teach us. Here is Chris Meckley. Uh, welcome to the River. It's good to have you here with us this morning. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Chris Meckley. I'm one of the priests here at the River. Um, if you haven't been here with us for the last few weeks, we're in a series called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Um, and it seems like the topics are, are getting a little bit heavier each week. We first talked about, about being with God rather than, than just doing things for God. We talked about what it means to follow the crucified and ra- rather than the Americanized Jesus. Last week we talked about embracing the limits that God has given us rather than fighting against those limits. And today we're going to be talking about grief and loss. Now, next week, we get to move on to love as a measure of spiritual maturity. But as we're going to see today, grief isn't just something that we should get through so that we can move on with our lives. So I hope that rather than looking ahead to a more comfortable topic, you'll join me as we sit with this topic of grief and loss this morning. So let's pray as we begin. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear your word to us today. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. If you told me a year ago that I would spend a rainy Thursday morning uh, weeping like a child while I dug a muddy grave in my backyard for a duck, I would have told you you were insane um, or gravely mistaken. You've got the wrong guy. I'm not the sentimental pet owner. And that's actually exactly how I spent this past Thursday. Uh, A predator, we think a raccoon, got into our pen under the fence and killed one of our our pet ducks. And you might be thinking, it's just a duck. And I realize in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's a pretty minor loss. But that didn't make my grief any less real. I was actually, I was actually pretty shocked at how much I felt the grief and loss of that duck. And while I don't think that, that God caused my duck to be killed by a raccoon just for the sake of my sermon, I, I do think that God used that for good. Because while I was working through today's difficult and emotional topic of grief and loss, I was keenly reminded of how it feels to grieve the loss of someone or something that you love. Now, all of us, without exception, have experienced grief and loss. Some of you have experienced far more than your fair share of grief and loss. And some of you might be thinking, well, I I really haven't had anyone close to me die. I haven't experienced grief and loss. And that's how I felt for a long time um, until my, my father passed away unexpectedly four and a half years ago. But even if you don't know someone close to you who's died, you have experienced grief. And you've experienced loss. When we think of grief and loss, we usually think of death. But really, grief and loss comes in many different forms from many different things and events and in many different degrees. In the book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Pete Schizero provides a pretty comprehensive list of the different grief-causing losses that people experience throughout life. There are devastating losses like premature death. Disability, mental illness, infertility, divorce, abuse, cancer, 
suicide. There are unexpected losses from cataclysmic events like September 11th or the COVID-19 pandemic or the Flint water crisis. There are natural disasters like earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, fire, flood. We experience natural losses that are expected but can still be incredibly hard. Graduation, retirement, moving, changing jobs, kids leaving the house. These are things that are good things, but they still sometimes come with grief and loss because of the way that things are changing in our lives. And we also face internal losses like the loss of identity and purpose and self-worth, the loss of a sense of safety or the loss of memory. The reality is there's a lot in our lives that causes grief and loss. But our culture, with Western culture in general, and even the church in the West, is, is usually not up to the task of facing grief and loss in a healthy way. Skizera points out that Western culture as a whole devalues loss and grief because we place such a high value on control and continued ascent through life. In contrast, grief and loss requires surrender and descent. And because of this, we have an unhealthy and a potentially harmful reaction to grief and loss. We deny our feelings. We minimize our suffering. We distract ourselves. We attempt to numb the pain. When my father died, I stayed in Indiana for an extra week, you know, helping my mom file papers, going through boxes, sorting books. Um, and partly I wanted to stay behind and help my mom, but Partly, I just wanted to stay busy. I didn't want to have to dwell on it. I didn't want to have to think about it. I wanted to distract myself. I wanted to put off sitting in my grief and feeling it, like I had to on the 11-hour drive up to his funeral. We can also view grief and losses as an interruption to our normal life, something we need to get past so that we can move on with life. And that's an approach that many Christians sometimes take when approaching the grief of others, and it can lead to a sentimentality that's at best naive and at worst really hurtful. And we've all heard and maybe even said things like, well, he's in a better place now, or God just wanted her in heaven with him, or don't worry, God's in control. And those statements are are well meant, but they fail to acknowledge grief and pain that the person's experiencing. And they can trivialize grief and loss. So how should we approach suffering and grief and loss? As Christians, what are we supposed to do with it? Now, aren't we supposed to consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when we face trials of many kinds? Doesn't that mean we should just slap on a smile no matter what we're going through? Or shouldn't we just remember that I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future? Doesn't that mean it's wrong for us to dwell in our grief? Doesn't that mean we're going against God's will and against his plan if we dwell on loss rather than moving forward with hope? We're going to take a look at this passage from Mark 9. So if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible on your phone, I'd encourage you to to turn there because we're going to spend the majority of our time in that passage. It's a passage that deals with grief and loss. And hopefully it will help us to look at, at three distinct phases that we have for rightly processing our grief and loss. The first is that we should pay attention to our pain. The second is that 
We should wait in the confusing in-between. And third is that we should allow Jesus to resurrect us and make us new out of our grief. And as we go through this passage, I want to encourage you to put yourself in the place of the Father in this story. One of the three phases is, is paying attention to pain. So pay attention to the pain that this father must have been feeling in the passage. Now to set the scene, the, this encounter takes place right after the transfiguration, when Jesus was revealed in all his glory and joined by Moses and Elijah on the mountain. And so Peter, James, and John are with Jesus, coming down from the mountain, and as soon as they come down, they join the other disciples who they find arguing with the teachers of the law, the scribes. Now the scribes had come to investigate Jesus' claims, um, or the claims about Jesus and about his preaching and about his miraculous work. And it's pretty clear that they're trying to take advantage of Jesus' absence to try to get the better of his disciples. They don't really have the guts to face Jesus himself, but they want to prove that he's a fraud. And so Jesus confronts them when he comes down, and he demands a response from them. What are you arguing with them about? Before they can answer, though, we hear this man speak up from the crowd. Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, it might seem odd to us that he almost seems to be blaming Jesus for the failure of the disciples. Right? I brought you my son, and I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. But actually, a principle of discipleship in the ancient world was that the messenger of a man is as the man himself. Which means that a disciple would be expected to represent his master. And if he couldn't, it, it would negatively reflect on his master even more than on the disciple. And so Jesus turns from rebuking the scribes to rebuking his disciples. He says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And here we actually see Jesus experiencing his own grief because of the failure once again of those under his authority. One commentator on the passage says that Jesus' poignant cry of exasperation is an expression of weariness which is close to heartbreak. He's been walking alongside these men. He's been teaching them every day, all day. He'd previously given them authority over impure spirits in Mark 6. And we're told that the disciples went out and preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And so when they fail to cast out the demon from this boy, Jesus' grief and his exasperation is because his disciples have once again failed to understand what he's been trying to teach them. Even though they've spent so much intimate time with him. Now, as soon as the boy is brought to Jesus, the spirit throws him into one of these epileptic convulsions. Mark says he fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. If you've ever witnessed someone having an epileptic seizure, you'll understand how terrifying and how intense this situation would have been. And yet Jesus doesn't immediately jump into action. Instead, he turns to the father and asks him, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, just as Jesus pauses here, I want to pause as well. 
to consider the grief and the loss that this father and his son and their family have experienced. This boy's been afflicted by the Spirit for a long time. It says from childhood. But it also tells us he hasn't been afflicted from it forever. It wasn't from birth. There's a time when this was not their everyday reality. And the father tells Jesus that this deaf and mute spirit has robbed his boy of speech. The boy wasn't always, but now is deaf and mute. As a father of, of three young boys, I can't imagine the pain and the frustration and the grief that he must have felt to not be able to be heard by his son and for his son not to be able to speak to him. That loss alone would cause incredible grief and heartache. But on top of that, his, he has these intense convulsions where he loses all control of his body and there's nothing the father can do to help. How hard and painful must it have been to sit idly by while his son suffers? What father or mother wouldn't willingly trade places with their suffering child if they could? And that's not even everything on top of that. This spirit is bent on the boy's utter destruction, tries to throw him into the fire and into the water. And so we can imagine the constant vigilance of this father and the constant state of fear that he must have lived in. We can imagine the, the guilt and shame that he probably felt at times. What did I do wrong to bring this on my son? He probably asked God. And imagine the guilt he must have felt when at his worst moments he probably thought, it would be better if my son were dead than to suffer like this. Think of all the pain and suffering and loss and grief that is wrapped up in his plea. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now when I read this passage, I don't don't see the kind of stoic Jesus that we see in the movies. I see a Jesus who is weary and whose heart is heavy at the pain that he's experiencing and at the suffering and the grief that he is about to experience himself when he's betrayed and beaten and murdered on the cross. And a Jesus who's weary and grieved at his disciples that they're so slow to understand and who's grieved and wearied by the religious leaders who are trying to stop his ministry. And he responds to the Father, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the Father responds, out of all this loss, out of all his suffering and pain and grief, with total uninhibited honesty, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And so Jesus responds by rebuking the Spirit, commanding it never to enter the boy again, and the Spirit convulses the boy one more time, and leaves him to all appearances dead. As if the father hasn't suffered enough grief and loss, it now appears that his son is dead. But it says Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Literally translated, it says Jesus lifted him up and he arose. And it's actually the same words that Mark uses for Jesus' resurrection. It says that he was lifted and arose from the grave. And of course, the disciples are curious. Why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replies, this kind can come out only by prayer. And so let's take a moment to consider the various responses to grief that we see in this passage. First, we have the crowd. And the crowd is here for the spectacle of it all. 
There's the clash between the disciples and the scribes. And there's the demon-possessed boy and the confrontation between Jesus and the Spirit. It's suspenseful. Can he cast it out? Is he powerful enough to do what his disciples couldn't? Or is he just another fraud? It's like must-see TV for them. And we see them running to Jesus when he gets there. And then they run to see him cast the demon out. And they're whispering behind their hands that the boy's dead after Jesus casts out the Spirit. They're there to be entertained. And then we have the scribes who are seeking to capitalize on the grief and the loss of this family. Like, we can use this. Nobody's ever been able to heal this boy. We can prove that he's a fraud by testing his disciples. And we have the disciples who are well-intentioned but misguided. They've set out to prove the power of Jesus which he bestowed upon them. They're going to exercise their authority over the spiritual realm. They're going to power their way through this problem. The Spirit's only a speed bump on their way to bringing about the kingdom of God. And none of these three groups approach grief and loss correctly because they ignore the pain and the suffering or they attempt to exploit it or they treat it like it's an inconvenience, a problem to be solved. But that's not what we see with Jesus. Jesus pays attention to the pain of the Father. Rather than moving to action and solving the problem right away, he asks the empathetic question, how long has he been like this? He even seems to feel the pain and the disappointment of the Father as he faces his own disappointment. No matter what he does, his disciples won't understand him. The religious leaders want to kill him. The crowds just want him to entertain them. And so not only does he pay attention to and feel the pain of this Father, he waits with him in his grief. He enters into the grief and and he really forces the Father to wait and to sit in that grief. And to experience it in a new and a different way. Don't you think that this was probably the first time the father hadn't immediately jumped to the aid of his convulsing son? Maybe it's the first time that he hadn't immediately fallen to the ground and held him and comforted him. It's all right, I'm here. And it must have seemed like an eternity to the father. Well, Jesus asked him these questions as his little boy is convulsing on the ground. But he needed to sit in that grief and he needed to be in that pain and to experience it in a different way without trying to do something about it, without trying to fix it. He needed to reach a point of total surrender and total desperation. He needed to die to himself so that his faith could be resurrected. And out of that waiting and desperation and death of self comes his honest prayer of surrender. I believe Help my unbelief. And when Jesus says this kind can come out only by prayer, this is the prayer he's talking about. This prayer of total surrender and total humility. I believe. Help my unbelief. The Father stops trying to fix everything. He puts to death that urge. And he throws himself utterly and completely on the mercy of Jesus. That's why the disciples failed. It's not that they had encountered some particularly powerful spirit that was too high up the scale for them. They failed because they were relying on themselves and on their own power, which Jesus had bestowed on them earlier. But they'd cut themselves off from the source. That authority wasn't a one-time gift that would last forever. They had to keep being refilled by the Holy Spirit. And that's something the disciples failed to learn again and again. Although eventually they did get it, as you can see in the book of Acts. Just like the father in this story, they had to learn to surrender themselves totally to Jesus. They had to learn to pray the prayer, I believe, 
Help my unbelief. Look at when they abandon him when he goes to the cross. They're in utter grief. And they could each have prayed that prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. And so this interaction between Jesus and the Father, this is our model for how to deal with grief and suffering. They pay attention to their pain. They wait in the confusing in-between. And the Father surrenders himself totally and allows Jesus to resurrect him and make him new. And we need to pay attention to pain. We need to pay attention to our own and to the pain of those around us. Now, some of us are great at recognizing our own pain, but we're oblivious to what others are experiencing. And on the flip side, some of us are great at seeing others' pain, but we're terrible at recognizing or maybe acknowledging the pain that's in ourselves. And it should be obvious from the story we just read, but we need to pay attention to pain, not for entertainment or for gain or to fix it, but so that we can enter into it and so that we can enter into the pain of others. I saw a sign at Starbucks the other day, and I'm sure many of you have seen it because it's not the first time I've seen it, but it said, today you could be standing next to someone who's trying their best not to fall apart. So whatever you do today, do it with kindness in your heart. And that's a great sentiment, and I wholeheartedly agree with it, and it's something that we should all strive for every day. And it's about 25% of what we should do as followers of Jesus. Because as followers of Jesus, when we're standing next to someone who's trying their best not to fall apart, our duty and our joy is to enter into the pain with them. Not just to be kind to them. We're called to bear one another's burdens. It doesn't mean that we should be kind to them so they don't fall apart. It means we should really and truly get into the pain with them so that they have the freedom to fall apart. So that they can experience their grief without feeling like they have to hold it all together. So that they can wait in that confusing in-between. And that's a hard thing to do because, like Schizero said, our culture values control and assent. And waiting in our grief is neither of those. It feels wrong and it feels unnatural for us to be still in our grief. Not try to get through it. We're people of constant motion. But waiting in our grief is what we need to do. But it's not our final goal. There are some who remain in their grief too long. They begin to wallow in it and they allow it to define them and to define their lives. And it's because they're missing that final prayer of surrender. The, I believe, help my unbelief. And while the goal is not just to get past our grief, the goal is not to remain in it forever. It's to be changed by Christ through that grief and loss. The hope is that we would surrender ourselves to Jesus. That we would feel our pain and feel that we can't bear it without him. That we could be resurrected into new people. Even more in his image than we were before. The call to feel our pain and to wait in our grief and loss is a call to die to ourselves and our self-reliance and to fall completely on the mercy of God. And this honest prayer of submission and surrender, I believe, help my unbelief, that's the key. When we stop relying on ourselves, when we stop trying to put on a brave face, when we stop trying to get past this interruption that's our grief, and when we surrender ourselves to him completely, and when we earnestly pray that prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, he will resurrect us from that grief 
and make us more in his image. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He understands our pain and our suffering better than we do ourselves. And when we allow ourselves to become men and women of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he will make us more like him. He will make us more self-aware and more aware of others, more empathetic and more compassionate. When we surrender ourselves and our grief to him, he'll make us better able to enter into the pain of others. I experienced this uh, only a few months after my father died. One of the college students that I was working with at the time here at the river went through almost the exact same thing. His father unexpectedly passed away. And I never would have known how to care for him well. But after waiting in and feeling my own grief and loss, I was able to, to sit with him in his grief and loss and enter into his pain without feeling like I needed to fix something or help him get past it, which would have been my instinct before I had that experience. Our losses and our grief are not merely interruptions to our lives. They're events that, that shape who we are. They change the course of our lives, sometimes in subtle almost imperceivable ways, and sometimes drastically and dramatically. How they change our lives, though, depends on how we face them. If we ignore them, or if we speed through them, or if we wallow in them, our hearts will become hardened to ourselves, to others, and to the work of Christ. But if we allow ourselves to, to feel the pain of grief and loss, and if we wait in that grief and loss, if we abide there. And if we pray that honest and humble prayer of surrender, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus is faithful and he will resurrect us and make us new, just as he's making all things new. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at theriverinrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 9.15 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.